Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Before we start, I wanted just to uh, mention a, a question someone asked me recently. We were going through this, uh, this, exe- this lengthy exegetical series on the book of Romans, uh, and, and, and someone asked me, David, why are we going through every verse of every chapter in this book? And I because I really want you to know it. I want you to know every chapter and, and every argument of Paul's and, 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 and every paragraph and every sentence and every phrase. In fact, I want you to go home tonight after you read this passage today in Romans 3 and 4. Uh, I want you to re- I want you to reread it, reread the whole passage on your own from start to finish, uh, and and be able to say, I understand this. I know exactly what Paul's arguments are. I know exactly what he's saying. I understand the chapters. I understand every paragraph. I understand every passage and every sentence and every phrase. Uh, I get this because we're going through, and that's why we're going through it so methodically and meticulously, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through the entire book of Romans. Uh, because I want you to have that hidden in your hearts. Amen? Amen. Well, today's part six uh, of our series on the book of Romans. We're slowly going through it. We're going to look today at the topic of boasting. Okay? So look at Romans 3.27. We're going to begin on the overhead as well. Romans 3.27. We're going to go through chapter 4, verse 8. So Romans 3.27. And Paul says this. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? What principle? Because of the law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintained that a person is justified by faith, by trusting, apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the Torah by this faith? Not at all. Paul is saying very emphatically here in the Greek, may it never be. Rather, we uphold the Torah. What then shall we say that Abraham, the forefather of us Jews, what did he, what did he discover in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to anyone who works, their wages aren't credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to anyone who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom the Lord credits righteousness apart from works. And he's quoting from the Psalms here. Uh, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, uh, whose sins are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord will not count against them. Amen. And we focused last week, if you were here, on Romans 3, uh, where Paul emphasizes that we're justified by faith through the blood of, of Yeshua the Messiah. So last week we focused on the theme of the blood of Messiah. Uh, there's power in the blood. Amen. Uh, today, I want to focus on this term faith. Uh, what is saving faith? And in our passage today, interestingly, kind of surprisingly, Paul twice contrasts faith with boasting. In verse 27, he says the opposite of boasting 
is faith. And then again, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says the opposite of boasting is faith. So Paul is trying to describe saving faith by contrasting it with boasting. So let's look at three points in this passage today and have it on the overhead. Uh, Number one, there's a spiritual sickness that the Bible calls boasting. Number two, there's an antidote to this spiritual sickness. And number three, how do we actually take, practically take, this antidote? So number one, there's a spiritual sickness, which is boasting. Now in the Bible, this idea of boasting comes up a lot more often than you might think about. You might think, you know, Paul mentions it constantly. Uh, And the background in this idea of boasting, what's both good and bad about boasting, we can understand if we look at the origin of the idea of boasting. In ancient times, boasting was a ritual you engaged in before a battle. Boasting was a ritual part of warfare in ancient times. How do you get your soldiers to to charge with all their might and all their passion into what could be certain death? How do you motivate them? With a ritual boast. It it was the original form of what we call it today, trash talk. (laughs) The king or the general... They would do some kind of ritual boasting in front of their, their troops, their soldiers, to rile them up for the battle. So, for example, he might say, By tonight, their king's head will be impaled upon my spike and displayed on the city wall for all to see. All the troops would cheer and, and yell and, and raise their swords in, their, in, the, in the air and scream, Yay! These are kind of the crude versions of, of, of these trash talks. There's also more elegant, uh, eloquent uh, versions, like, for example, King Henry's Crispian Day speech uh, to his troops in Shakespeare's Henry V. You know, that's an incredibly eloquent, but essentially it, it's, it's a ritual boast. At the end of the speech, what happens? There's a cheer. And who are they cheering for? Themselves. Because how do you get people uh, to, to rush into battle? How do you get them to charge out in confidence in the face of, of horrible danger? You boast. Now, it's fascinating how the Bible takes something by which you get confidence to go into battle uh, in ancient military warfare and, and to say, this is actually what's characteristic of every single human heart. And this is what's wrong with every single human heart. So, for example, in the book of Judges, the Lord's speaking to Gideon. And Gideon's called to lead Israel against the Midianites. Uh, and Gideon prays to the Lord, Lord, help me, Lord, defeat the Midianites. And so we read this in Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord says, the people who are with you, Gideon, they're, they're too many. For if I deliver the Midianites into your hands, Israel will boast against me, saying, my own hand, save me. Now, right there is the essence of the problem. The whole idea behind a ritual boast is we can do it. We can get it. We're strong enough. We're good enough. And what God's saying is the problem of every human heart is that you look to yourself. You look to your own beauty. You look to your own smarts, your own talent. You look to anything good about yourself. Uh, You look at your achievements, and you say, I did that. Uh, And you take credit for it. You see it as your accomplishment. But in, in reality, they're all gifts from God. You were born with this talent or with this intellect or with this beauty. They're gifts from God. But you take credit for them. Because this is the very nature of the human heart, uh, to boast. 
now, probably the most famous spot in all the scriptures that talks about the, the spiritual sickness, this difficulty, and the problems of boasting is in Yirmiyahu, Hanabi, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 9, Jeremiah 9, 23. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now, what's, what is Jeremiah saying? What's God saying through Jeremiah? God is saying that every soul makes its boast in something. And by the way, a little Hebrew lesson here, the word boast here in Jeremiah is actually the word hallel, to praise. And it's in what's called the hitpalel verb form, which is the reflexive verb form, which means to praise oneself. The text is telling us here, anyone who makes their boast, their, their, their praising of themselves, their self-praise uh, in something, you see that you, you look to something, uh, and, and, and this is what you're boasting in, in yourself. So if you've got money, you say to yourself, you say to other people, look at all the money I've got. If you've got might or athletic prowess or beauty, you say, look at me, look at that. If you've got intelligence, you say, look how smart I am. And whatever it is, you say, this is why I'm valuable. This is why I am love-worthy. This is why I'm worthy of applause and accolades and, and cheering. This is why I'm worthy of praise. This is my glory. This is who I am. This is my significance and my worth and my value. I am praising myself. That's the actual Hebrew here. Uh, this boasting. Uh, this thing that I've accomplished, uh, it's mine. Uh, you see, the soul knows, our heart knows, that this world is a battlefield. How are we going to move out in confidence? We boast. Or when you're attacked, you know, when you're criticized, when you're opposed, how do you defend yourself? How do you deal with the battle? This is what the human heart does. You say, for example, I'm a good father, I'm a good mother. Uh, look how great my children are. I'm a good artist. Look, look at my paintings. Or I'm a good musician. Uh, look at all that I've composed. Or I'm a good person. Uh, I go to shul. I obey the law of God. You know, look at my moral record. Or I'm part of this incredibly important political cause. And I'm doing really good in this world. Or I'm part of this particular people group. I really care about my people and I'm helping them. And God says to us today, don't do that. Stop boasting. Everybody looks at something and says, that's mine. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. And looks to do the praise and, and, and to cheer yourself or looks to the praise and cheers uh, you want to get from other people. So we're always trying to defend and to boost and boast and, and promote uh, and reassure ourselves and build up our confidence and our, and our self-esteem and our assurance and self-worth. Look at this. Look at that. Look at me. Aren't I great? This makes me worthy. And God says to us today, stop. Don't boast in your wisdom or your might or your riches or your beauty or your accomplishments. Boasting is, is this vainglorious battle cry. And every boast, by the way, is also a taunt. Did you know that? Every boast, if you flip it around, it's a taunt. Uh, when the, gen the general would say, we're going to wipe the floors with you. You know, come on, man, let's charge and get them. That's also a taunt against the enemy. 
It is it's a way of despising and ridiculing the, the opposing army. And of course, it can sometimes backfire. So for example, you've got a player on the other opposing football team. Uh, and he mocks the other side before the big Super Bowl game. And he says things like, their receivers are no match for our secondary. They're not even going to catch one pass the whole game. What's he doing? It's a ritual boast, right? He's inspiring his team. But it's also a taunt. Uh, and it can backfire because the coach of the other team, what's he going to do? He's going to take this quote and he's going to pin it up in the locker room and say, are you going to take that from them? <laughs> and it creates this kind of bad blood and it fuels up the opposition to fight back. So when you ground your identity, uh, when you boast in something that you have or something that you do, that identity, as much as it seems to, to build you up, it always divides other people. Uh, it's a taunt, and it leads to all kinds of destruction and, and breakdowns and, and division and, and conflict. So, for example, if the ultimate boast of your soul is what a hardworking person I am, you will therefore disdain and feel superior to anyone else you think is lazy. Or if your ultimate boast of your soul is, I'm a good person. I go to shul. I'm Torah observant. Uh, I study the Bible. I keep Shabbat and Kashrut. Uh, I keep the Moedim, the biblical feast days. Uh, my doctrine is just right. What's going to happen? Then you're going to despise and look down anyone else you consider an infidel. <laughs> you're going to disdain all those Sunday church Christians, how terrible they are. And you're going to mock them and their practices that you consider are, are unbiblical or anti-Torah. If the ultimate boast of your soul is that I'm part of this great people, or this great race or ethnic group or nationality, you're going to villainize and demonize any other people group that's different from yours. You see, you can be part of a nationality or a people group or, or a political cause, but when it becomes the ultimate boast of your soul, when it becomes, this is how I know I'm okay. This is why I feel good about myself. This is my ultimate identity. Then you will demonize and vilify and marginalize those of a different people group or political cause or ideology. And this has become so toxic today with our so-called identity politics, dividing people up by race or, or gender or sexuality or ideology. Uh, it makes any kind of civil discourse impossible. And, and so many people feel good about themselves just because they belong to a certain uh, subgroup or political cause. Why? Because the human heart wants to boast and wants to taunt the other side. Uh, so wants to re- rely on and trust, if you will, in our own works righteousness. So much wants to glorify in our own self-righteousness. The human heart loves to set up ways in which we're better than somebody else or some other group and subtly boast in that. Instead of humbly admitting that we are fellow sinners, fellow beggars, desperately in need of God's grace. And if we're br- brutally honest, we're like the Pharisee in the temple, thanking God that I'm not like uh, that terrible sinner over there, that tax collector. You see, the human heart will boast. It'll take something that's an absolute gift of God and say, that's mine. That's why I'm love-worthy. That's why I'm worthy of applause and accolades and cheering. And it divides the human race. And it puffs you up 
in arrogance. And by the way, if you fail to get what you, what you boast in, uh, you boast about yourself, uh, then you're going to beat yourself up and, and loathe yourself and hate yourself the rest of your life. Boasting is a soul sickness. That's point number one. Put on the overhead, uh, point number two. Uh, what's the antidote? The antidote that the scripture here tells us, that the passage tells us, is faith. Saving faith. Look at Romans 3.27. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Uh, by, by the Torah that requires works? No. By the Torah of faith. Great phrase. That's what it actually says in here. The, the Torah of faith. The Torah of works is relying on your own self-righteousness, which only increases boasting. Uh, that's what boasting's all about. But rather, it's by the Torah of faith, which is the anti-work. Look at the next verse, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the Torah. For God justifies both the circumcised and the uncircumcised through the same faith. And Romans 3.31, that Paul says, do we then nullify the Torah through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. Now, note here that what's happening here is some critics of Paul were accusing him of nullifying the Torah. So he's trying to meet his critics here and answer them. He feels compelled uh, to respond. Uh, and he says, far from nullifying the Torah, justification by faith alone, not by works, establishes the Torah. Why? Because the Torah always had faith at its core. And we're about to see this in the very next chapter with Paul's example of Abraham. And the Torah was given to point us to the Messiah. The Torah then pointed us to all who would have eyes to see and ears to hear to the Messiah. And having come to faith in the Messiah is then to confirm the very message of the Torah, not to nullify it. What's more, Paul's premise here throughout the book of Romans is that the doers of the Torah, not just the hearers of the Torah, are the ones who are justified. Thus, the Torah... Leading the sinner to Yeshua is established in that how that believer walks. Not according to the deeds of the flesh, but through the, but through the Spirit, who fulfills the requirements of the Torah within him. In this way, faith in Yeshua establishes the Torah. Why? As it, because it recreates within us a heart upon which the Torah is written, and therefore lived out in humble obedience. So Paul here is clearly stating that the Torah is not abolished by faith in Yeshua. It's just the opposite. It's written on our hearts and established within us. Now Paul's proposition here in, in, in chapter 3, that we're justified by trusting in Messiah, not by virtue of us obeying the Torah, uh, it's brought now front and center in chapter 4 uh, with the example of Father Abraham. Abraham is now presented here, he's brought forth and presented as the, as the example of someone who, if there was any basis for boasting, it would certainly have been him. So look at Romans 4, verse 1. What shall then we say that Abraham, the forefather of us Jews, discovered in this matter? If Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. Because that's the ultimate boast, right? To say, God, you owe me. So what's going on here? Well, by the first, this is what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, by the first century, rabbinic uh, Judaism, rabbinic, the rabbinic idea uh, was, was developing that Avraham had won the favor of God through his willingness to sacrifice his son, Yitzhak, Isaac. 
Uh, and, then, and this idea was now gaining favor uh, in, 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 in among the rabbis. And the rabbis began to think of this as Avraham's merit. Uh, this is reflected throughout rabbinic literature, the, the, the merit of Avraham, the merit of the patriarchs, the forefathers. In fact, the rabbis then began to try to develop the idea that Abraham's merit not only saved him, but also created this excess supply of merit that all Jews could call upon. Uh, so, save us, Lord, we're told, in the merit of our father Abraham. We read this again and again in the rabbinic writings. Uh, very similar, by the way, to the later Catholic idea of the so-called treasury of merits. You may have heard of this. Whereby you could pray to the saints to decrease your or your family's time in purgatory. Now, this rabbinic idea of salvation of, of the Jews to the merit of Father Abraham, Paul could not let this go unanswered. Because the whole basis of Abraham being declared righteous was strictly based on his faith. Long before the binding of Isaac. And even long before Abraham was even circumcised. It had nothing to do with Abraham's works that he was declared righteous. Because he was declared righteous strictly because he believed God. Believed, uh, and he, he was strictly because of his faith. And therefore, the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant come only to those who, like Abraham, place their faith in the Lord. Uh, and thus gain the righteousness that only comes through faith. So Genesis 15, which Paul is quoting here, uh, makes it very clear that Abraham savingly trusted in God, and this and this alone was the means by which God declared him righteous. Let's look at Romans 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Now he's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 4. Now to anyone who works... Their wages are not credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to anyone who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, this word here in the Greek, credited, is the word logizome. It's actually an accounting word. It comes from the world of ledgers and account books. And what it's saying is that, though you may not have earned that million dollars, if it's now credited to you, if it's put into your account... It's now yours. God's righteousness is credited to you through your faith in Yeshua. That which you were trying to earn and to boast in is now freely given to you. And that's the antidote. Now, how does that work? How is that the antidote? When Paul says, where then is boasting? He's he's referring to a case which he discussed back in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, Paul uses certain uh, Jewish attitudes at the time uh, as, as a case study in boasting. And he says, the problem with many of my fellow Jews is that they boast in their circumcision. Because circumcision represented the Abrahamic covenant uh, and their chosen status and their commitment to obey the Torah. But they became proud of their circumcision and they began to boast in it. And then Paul says this back in Romans 2, verse 28. He says, a person is not a Jew who's only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not their written code. Such a person's praise is not from men, but from God. Paul says that what you really want and need uh, isn't these, aren't these outward rituals. What you really want and really need is a new heart, a circumcised heart, a new birth, Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. 
All other religions are a combination of faith plus works. They therefore get their praise in part from men, not from God. They boast in their works. So, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say you're saved by faith plus certain Old Testament works. Mormonism says you're saved by all, all after all, you, all, you do everything that you can do, and you keep all your vows. Islam says maybe you're saved if you're good enough, and by the way, you never know. Catholicism famously mixes grace and works. Uh, it says you're saved by faith plus the sacraments. In rabbinic Judaism, salvation is, 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 is faith and the mitzvot and keeping the law. And then for every other religious system, your works righteousness plays an essential part. And therefore, you have much to boast about, but not before God. Because God says this in Isaiah 64, 6. All have become like an unclean thing. All your righteousness is like a filthy rag. Yeshua faith is unique in all the world. Because only Yeshua faith says, Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from observing the law. And therefore we have nothing to boast about except in the cross of Messiah. Now, the Catholic Church, by the way, has twisted this verse about but not to boast. And they say, you, we can, you can never know that you're, if you're saved. You can never have the assurance of faith. Why? Because that would be boasting. But the verse actually says the exact opposite. We're supposed to boast as long as we're boasting not in ourselves, but in the cross. Unlike Catholicism, which is dependent on the uncertainty of our works, the Lord wants you to have the assurance of your faith as you trust in him. That's what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 6. He's quoting here from, from David. So David says, The same thing when he speaks of the blessedness to those whom God credits righteousness apart from their works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sins the Lord will never uh, count against them. Unlike Catholicism, where it's a sin to presume that you're saved, the scriptures say it's a glorious thing. It's a blessed thing to have the confidence in your forgiveness and salvation. Catholics say it's arrogant because how do you know you're good enough? Because they teach works plus faith. But Paul makes it clear, again, Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So I can have assurance, not by arrogantly boasting in my works, but by boasting in Yeshua's works, by boasting on his finished work on the cross. You can be sure that he has perfectly completed your salvation. You can be sure and confident that his death and resurrection is good enough for you. So you can be that blessed man of Romans 4, with the grace of God in Messiah. To the next verse, Romans 4, verse 9. Is, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, does this mean that salvation by faith only applies to Jews because they're the children of Abraham? And therefore, kind of through the back door, works kind of slips back in. Because the Jews are circumcised, the Jews obey the Torah. But Paul anticipates this objection. Look at the very next verse, Romans 4.10. Under what circumstances was his faith, Abraham's faith, credited as righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised or before? 
It wasn't after, but before. He's credited righteous, by the way, in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised in Genesis 17. Genesis 15 makes it clear that Abraham was righteous by faith. But chronologically, he was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised, not after. Circumcision is the covenant sign of Judaism. So this is telling us that you can be saved without having to be Jewish. Imagine Abraham received God's promises and believed in God, Genesis 15, and then all of a sudden he dies, before ever becoming circumcised. Does he go to heaven? Yes, of course. In Genesis 15, God declares him righteous, based strictly on his faith, before he was ever circumcised. That's Paul's point here in Romans 4. Paul is emphasizing that all the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, David, they were all saved by grace through faith. Not by being Jewish, not by keeping the Torah, but then walking with the Lord and obeying his Torah, the Torah that's now, which is now written on our hearts, that's a sign, that's a demonstration of your inward saving faith. Even as Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac was a sign of his faith, as Yaakov, as James points out in his epistle. So throughout Romans 3 and 4, Paul here is going out of his way to speak against mixing faith and works. Okay, so one may ask, what then is the whole point of circumcision? And Paul answers that in the very next verse. Look at Romans 4, verse 11. And he, Abraham, received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's a father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited also to them. God's saying here, I gave you this example of Abraham's faith and salvation before he was circumcised so that you would know that circumcision is not what makes you righteous. But what is it? It's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's supposed to, be a, it's supposed to point to a circumcised heart, which is the real thing that God is ultimately after. Genesis seventeen eleven. God says to Abraham, you don't undergo circumcision, Genesis 17, and there'll be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Paul here, of course, of course, is simply quoting the Torah. Circumcision was always meant to be a sign, pointing to the inward reality of a heart relationship with God. So, for example, you like, it's like you're on a tour to Israel, and you're on the tour bus, and you see a sign, welcome to Jerusalem. Everybody in the bus cheers! You're not actually in the city yet. It's just a sign pointing to the city. The sign is not the reality. The city is. You don't stop the bus. You all get out. You all gather on the sign and start taking pictures of the sign. <laughs> no, you keep on driving till you actually enter into Jerusalem. In the same way, circumcision is a sign of the righteousness of faith that should be within us. We're saying, I'm identifying with this sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. I am one of Abraham's spiritual, maybe also one of his physical descendants. I believe what he believed. So circumcision is a good thing. But Paul is also saying here that you can be saved with or without the sign. Romans 4.12. Abraham is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is an example of faith while uncircumcised, 
And he's also the example of circumcision as an outward sign of the inward faith. So he's an example to both Gentiles and to Jews. And he's an example of of this gospel principle of salvation by faith. And because it's by faith, we have nothing to boast in. But as again, we humans love to boast in various things, don't we? The human heart craves and thirsts for praise and adoration and applause and acclamation and honor and glory. That's why shows like American Idol are so popular. But, uh, but uh, we, all, we want to boast in something. The human heart wants to boast. We need that. We want that. Every soul craves that applause and that praise. But Paul says, do not build your identity on praising yourself or on others praising you and the praise of men. But build your identity on this. That in Messiah Yeshua, you are justified and loved and forgiven and adopted into God's family. In Messiah Yeshua, you now have the praise of God, the applause of God. God is cheering for you. Imagine you've just flawlessly performed a difficult Mozart violin concerto. And 2,000 people leap to their feet in thunderous applause at Carnegie Hall. That is nothing compared to the applause of God for you when you repent and trust in Yeshua. If you build your life on the cheers of the crowd or even the smiling face of a lover, it will distort you. It'll puff you up. It'll create conflicts in the world. It'll make you a slave to it. And if you ever lose it, you will hate yourself and lose all meaning in life. There's only one kind of praise that does not puff you up, that you can't lose, that heals you instead of rots your soul. That is the praise of God. This is what C.S. Lewis says, put it on the overhead uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, heavenly glory, what is it? It's fame with God. Praise, accolades, the delight of God. Trying to please others just turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But when a redeemed soul in glory, almost beyond all hope and belief, learns at last that he has pleased him whom he was created to please, then there'll be no room for vanity. You'll be free from the miserable illusion that it's your doing. With no taint of self-approval, you'll rejoice in the thing that God has made you to be. The moment that, and the moment that heals your old inferiority complex will also be the moment that drowns your pride deeper than Prospero's book. What C.S. Lewis here is saying, the minute you understand that in Yeshua you have God's applause, God's praise, God's thunderous affirmation, and, um, and admiration, and, and, and honor, and acclaim, solely by his grace, through faith in Yeshua, not based on your performance, on the one hand, that will destroy your inferiority complex forever. But on the other hand, it will humble you and drown your pride. As C.S. Lewis puts a quote from Shakespeare's uh, The Tempest, deeper than Prospero's book. This inner applause from God through Yeshua is what both gives you an inner confidence and contentment and at the same time also destroys any need or grounds for pride or arrogance or vanity. Because you know it's all based on his grace, not on your merit. So only the gospel, 
both humbles you and builds you up at the same time. And then C.S. Lewis continues with this in the overhead as well. He says, so it's written, we'll stand before him. The promise of glory is a promise almost incredible uh, and only possible by the work of Messiah that we should please God. It seems impossible. It's a weight of glory that our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. It means good report with God. It means acceptance, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've always been knocking all our lives will open at last. That's the antidote. Now, point number three, last point. How do you, how do you take this antidote? Let me give you on the basis of this text, uh, two handles, two practical handles, how to actually take this antidote. Because, because it's one thing to see your sickness and to see, even see the antidote. It's another thing to actually know how to, to take it, what to do about it. So if you want this antidote to actually get into your system, to begin to actually change you, change your identity, so it's not rooted in self-praise or the praise of others, praise of men, but in the praise of God, Here's what you're going to have to do. Two things. Number one, we'll put them on the overhead. Number one, you've got to see what it costs to get you this praise. And number two, you've got to make an appropriate boast. You've got to both uh, see what it costs to get you this praise. You have to make an appropriate boast, which is also, flip side, uh, also a taunt. So number one, the cost. When Paul talks about Abraham, when Abraham finally saw his salvation was being accomplished by God alone, not based on anything that he did. Uh, it's quoted, Paul quotes here in, in Romans 4, 3. What does the scripture say? And he's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what's the context here that Paul is quoting in Genesis 15? In Genesis 15, Abraham says this. Genesis 15, verse 2. Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate, it's Eliezer of Damascus. Because you've given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Abraham's saying, Lord, you've been promising me a son. How do I know it's ever going to happen? Now, God could have said back to him, Abraham, we've entered into this mutual covenant. where I promise to, I promise to bless you. And you promise to walk with and obey me. And Abraham, if you're wondering if I'm going to live up to, to my end of the bargain, uh, Abraham, let me tell you, that's not going to be the problem, my end of it. <laughs> but Abraham, he's asking, he continues to ask here in Genesis 15, Lord, how do I know I'm going to get this blessing? So God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Take some animals, cut them in half, set them opposite each other with a, with a row in the middle, corridor in the middle, a gauntlet, and this is what you're going to do. Uh, and this is what, by the way, this is what you did when you made a covenant in the ancient Mideast. Uh, you sacrificed an animal, you put the parts on two sides, and you walked between the pieces. It was known as the covenant walk. And you were symbolically saying in this ritual, if I don't do everything I promised, to promise to do here today, may I be hewn in two like this animal. Yeah, you're, you're taking on the curse of the covenant if you break the covenant oath. It was how covenants were ratified in the ancient Mideast. So when the Lord says to Abraham... Take some animals, cut them in half, create this aisle where you can walk, someone can walk between them, between the pieces. Abraham was sure that God was then going to say, 
okay, Abraham, now I want you to walk between these pieces and then ratify the covenant. Because in a covenant between a lesser and a greater, often only the lesser actually made the covenant walk. When a great empire made a treaty with a vassal state, only the king of the vassal country, typically, not the ruler of the empire, would be required to walk between the pieces. But that's not what happened here. God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and then God appears. Interestingly, he appears in two forms at once, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, kind of very similar to the, the, the pillar of cloud or smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night in the wilderness. And these two manifestations representing, if you will, the Father and the Son, these two forms or images of God passed between the pieces. And we read in Genesis 15, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Note that Abraham never walked between the pieces. He never passed between them. The Lord, in the person of Yeshua, passed on his behalf. So God passes on one, and then he passes again on behalf of Abraham. Saying symbolically that, number one, I'll do everything I promised you. And number two, that if you, Abraham, are unfaithful to the covenant, if you break the covenant, you won't have to pay. But I, the Lord, in the person of Messiah, will pay the penalty on your behalf. And perhaps for the first time, Abraham now understands that his righteousness, his salvation, is a free gift. He did nothing to earn it. He didn't have to pass through the pieces. God did all the work. Abraham's salvation was given to him, was credited to him. Abraham was declared righteous not by his works, but by his faith. And in only God passing through the pieces, as we we said, the Lord says, I'll take the curse. Let the curse fall on me. And in the person of Yeshua, it did. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Let the same mind be in you, who's in Messiah, Yeshua, who being in the very form and nature of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place, uh, and gave him a name above every name. And in the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yeshua is in heaven, eternally part of the Godhead. He had all the praise, all the adoration, everything every, any heart could ever want, and yet he gives it all up. And he comes down into this world where he's mocked and jeered, struck, spat upon, reviled, cursed, whipped, crucified, and killed. Imagine getting on stage, doing your best, and after your performance, instead of applause, the people throw rocks at you. Do you know what happened? Yeshua lost the acclamation of heaven and took the rejection that that we deserve so that we can have what he deserved, the applause of heaven. He got the divine rejection when the Father forsook him on the cross so that we could get the divine accolade and applause. When Yeshua went to the cross for you and for me, he paid our debt so that God could now say to us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. 
in whom I am well pleased. He was jeered so that you could have the infinite honor of God. That's what it cost him. And when you see that, your heart will melt. Only when you finally see that can you be absolutely convinced in your heart of God's delight in you. God's praise of you. And then you won't care what anybody else thinks. And that leads to the second aspect of receiving the antidote. Remember, boasts always lead to taunts. If you boast against an opposing army, it's also a taunt against them. Uh, Well, guess what? In the Bible, we're told that if you do it rightly, you should taunt, believe it or not. Once you understand your justification, once you understand who you are in Yeshua, you should taunt. Where does the Bible say that? Well, there's a kind of restatement, if you will, Romans 3 and 4, in Galatians 6, verse 14, where Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in the cross. The cross, as we see, is what it cost Yeshua to give you his praise. You see, in a sense, I am boasting. Now, I do know I have value in Messiah Yeshua. It's only in his cross that I boast, not in my works or my merits or my accomplishments or my righteousness. And what's the result of, of Galatians 6.14? The world is now crucified to me and I to the world. That's the secret of overcoming the world and not giving in to its lusts and temptations. To boast only in the cross. To to cling to the cross. To die to Messiah. To be raised to new life in him. The power of this world system and its lure and its lust has been broken by the cross. So now you can have victory over the world as you cleave and as you cling to Yeshua. You see, when you ground your identity in something in this world, I'm a great artist, I'm a great musician, I'm a great athlete or a scholar, I'm a great businessman or, or a theologian even, I've made a lot of money, I have all these people that love me. If you ground your identity in that, you know what you're doing. You're empowering the world and the world system. You're giving it power over you. And so if your career goes south, or if your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, what happens to your identity? Where is your identity housed? If it's in the things of this world, the world will say to you, if you don't have me, you are nothing. So the world controls you. But when you boast in the cross, you can look at the world and taunt it and say, you're not my life. You're not my identity. You can't control me. There was a woman I knew who constantly got into bad, abusive relationships with men. No boundaries, exploitive. Why did she allow this? Because she felt it deep in her soul somehow, somewhere, somehow, as long as I have a man in my life, I'm worth something. But when she finally embraced the gospel, she was able the first time to say to men, you are not my life. Maybe you're the guy for me, maybe you're not, but you are not my life. Yeshua is my life. You're not my identity. Yeshua is my identity. You're not my number one love. Yeshua is my number one love. What is she doing? She's taunting. She's taunting the world with the gospel. Because she's boasting in the cross. 
and it finally gave her freedom from getting into all these abusive relationships with men. She finally could make godly choices about men. I also knew a guy, uh, still know him, who was a big money manager, very wealthy, very successful. In 2005, he became a believer. He began to boast now in Messiah, not in his money. Three years later, when the great crash of 2008 came, he lost literally half his wealth. And he said to me, if I had not become a Yeshua follower three years ago, I would have jumped off a bridge this year when the stock market tanked. But 2008 has actually been one of the best years of my life because I can now look at my bank book and I can say, you don't own me anymore. You don't control me. You're no longer my life. Messiah is my life. What's he doing? He's boasting in the cross. And he's taunting the world. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to do the things, uh, that, um, do that to the things that are cowing you and trying to control you? Can you look at those things in the world and say, you may be a good thing, but you're not the ultimate thing in my life. Yeshua is my ultimate identity and significance and worth. Can you say that today? Learn how to say that. May I never boast except from the cross of my Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Amen? Amen. Well, I stand and pray. I'd like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we thank you for this revelation today of a true saving faith is the repentance uh, and trusting in your son, Yeshua, as our Lord and as our Savior, not based on our works or our merits, but based on Yeshua's works and Yeshua's merits. Thank you for showing us salvation. It's not just a change in our legal standing, but it's also being filled with your spirit, the spirit of Messiah, being truly born again and transformed from within, from inside out, given a new life, being adopted, Lord, into your family, and now and therefore receiving your praise and acceptance and applause. Help us, Lord, today to live in accordance with this new status that we have in you, to put off the old man and to walk in purity and integrity, and holiness, and humility, and servanthood in our new life in you. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for showing us that that faith isn't just some kind of general belief, but faith is boasting in your cross. It's regrounding our identity solely in you, Yeshua, so the world can no longer control us or enslave us or entice us. So the things of this world are no longer the the ultimate basis of our worth or significance or loyalty or allegiance or self-esteem. So, Lord Yeshua, help us to experience the freedom of the gospel and not to boast in anything else so that we no longer are spiritually controlled any longer or oppressed or vexed by any other forces or competing loyalties or false idols. Heal us, Lord, by your word. Heal us by your spirit. Heal us with your gospel, your gospel that we're justified by faith through the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. We pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.